from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Hi, this is Newt. Because of the coronavirus, I am currently staying at home in Rome, where my wife serves as the United States Ambassador to the Holy See. She's leading the embassy in dealing with all the different changes being brought about by the pandemic. To bring you this episode this week, I'm recording from my home, so you may notice a difference in audio quality. On this episode of Newt's World, President Trump has faced the COVID-19 national emergency, unlike any president has faced a crisis in modern American history. By responding to the COVID crisis with deregulation and decentralization, rather than centralizing power in Washington, He has relied on state and local governments to make decisions regarding social confinement, business closures, testing and treatment, and private enterprise to manufacture urgently needed medical supplies and equipment. President Trump has emphasized that the intensity of the epidemic varies widely and is best met by state and local judgments. The COVID-19 crisis and government response will ultimately lead to important lessons and policy improvements. My guest today wrote about this subject in the Wall Street Journal in an article entitled, Trump Rewrites the Book on Emergencies. I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, close friend and former boss, Chris DeMuth, distinguished fellow at the Hudson Institute. He was president of the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research from 1986 to 2008 and was known as President Reagan's deregulation czar. Chris, how surprised are you at the way that President Trump has 
consciously avoided centralizing and federalizing the response. Since the Reagan days in the early 1980s, I have observed that the administrative state in Washington has grown inexorably, and it has grown in part by taking over responsibilities that were formerly state responsibilities, and it has grown because Congress has increasingly delegated what are, in fact, lawmaking powers from the legislature to the executive, so that we now have an executive branch that is, in effect, the main lawmaker for America. And we have thousands and thousands of laws that probably could not have passed the Congress, enacted by agencies of one kind or another. The reasons for this growth, which has been continuous, are very deep, and they're in modern cultural and political developments. But the growth has been animated. Mainly, it has grown because of the two first crises of the 21st century, 9-11 and the 2008 financial crisis. Both of those large national crises led to the creation of huge new bureaucracies in the executive branch with powers of rulemaking, which is essentially making the law, surveillance of the population, discretionary enforcement, and even adjudication of their own enforcements, all of it within one branch of the federal government. And we have seen this twice. So you see a strong pattern. And the third crisis comes along in these last several months. And the president and his officials have not taken it upon themselves to exercise powers that are beyond what the statutes give them. And in fact, have been emphasizing the importance of variegated, diversified local responses led by governors and mayors, and in many cases, health professionals at hospitals, epidemiologists, clinicians. This is a dramatic departure, and I regard it as a highly positive one, and especially remarkable is that the president has put so much responsibility and so much of a limelight on private enterprise. Pharmaceutical companies and manufacturers of medical equipment, these are people that are coming to the rescue. So this is a very, very different form of emergency response than we have seen any time within the last half century. But why do you think the president made the decision to literally have the recovery take place with the governors. So you're going to have 50 competitive models out there. And you can already see the differentiation with, I think, 11 states now have begun to move towards opening up, while other states are sort of rigid. How do you think that plays out with the states becoming the laboratory of democracy? Newt, I would begin by saying that the conventional explanation that one encounters in the national media in the United States is wrong. Conventional explanation is that the president is trying to deflect responsibility from himself to others. This is a terrible episode that we're going through. Mistakes will be made. There's going to be a lot of blame. There may be a lot of praise at the end. 
but that he's trying to deflect things from himself to others. The word onus is used in all of the newspapers to say he's putting the onus on the governors and the mayors. I think that that's wrong. I think that in the American system, when something this momentous happens, the president gets the blame or the praise in the end, regardless. Following the Katrina hurricane in New Orleans, the federal government certainly did not distinguish itself in its response. But the major errors were made by the governor of Louisiana and the mayor of New Orleans. That's where the problems lay. And yet, who got the blame? George W. Bush got the blame. I think that President Trump understands that however this terrible emergency we're going through pans out, whether the American response is regarded as a success or a failure, he is going to get the praise or the blame and probably a large measure of both of them. So I think that the idea that he's trying to deflect things is not true. If he were trying to deflect things, he wouldn't have spent two hours in press briefings every day over the past month. I do regard President Trump as a constitutionalist. I think that he and his White House officials and Department of Justice have been very careful about presidential prerogatives. He realizes that the course of the pandemic and the appropriate responses to it are going to be highly various across this vast and heterogeneous country. What is right for New York City is not the right thing for South Dakota. And that the major elements of the response are going to fall within the traditional police powers of the states and localities. So if we're going to have an effective response, it is not going to be a one-size-fits-all national plan. It requires the local governments, private enterprise, the not-for-profit sector, health professionals, and ordinary citizens. So I think he's had a clear view of that and has acted on it as his idea of what is most likely to produce an effective response. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. You can't compare us to any country in Europe because we actually geographically are bigger than all of Europe outside of Russia. It's a remarkably diverse country. My hunch is the states that open up first, if they do it carefully and they do it with minimum kickback from the virus, are going to dramatically draw resources and energy and people away from the states that open up last in that there will actually be a significant shift as people realize that they're now living in a state that's still closed while their cousin's living in a state that's now pretty open. What's your reaction to that kind of concept? I think that you're exactly right. I think I'd go a little bit farther. I think that in retrospect, the wave of sort of total lockdowns, quarantining healthy people as well as people that were sick or at risk, and closing down things such as offices and parks and golf courses all around the country. I think we can see in retrospect that although perhaps at the time, these steps were justified simply because we were dealing with a virus that was, as we said, novel, meaning that human beings had never encountered this bug and that its lethality and infection and other characteristics were essentially unknown. I don't think that those things were wrong, but I think that we have learned that there was a good deal of overreach. Michigan does not have to ban lawn mowing. And many other states, including Virginia, where I live, a lot of people who live in the suburbs are sprucing up their lawns and their gardens, and they can use a lot of help from gardeners. And that provides some employment to people that in Michigan has just been closed down. So I think we're already seeing a certain amount of learning. Where I live in the Washington area, the mayor could open up downtown offices so the people could go to work taking all the proper precautions. That would be permitted by the president's opening up guidelines. It could be done now. I'm starting to see a shift here. Whereas two weeks ago, everybody was saying opening up too soon is going to cause problems. And even where governors or mayors did open up, people didn't want to go to work. There seems to be a shift. And it's beginning with things such as parks and open spaces. I think it will continue with kind of standard offices, such as the one I work in, where social distancing is not a problem. And there's going to be a lot of learning and a lot of progress. We still have a lot of learning to do, frankly. While we've been on a very steep learning curve, 
for the past two months. There's still much that we don't know, and there are new things that just this week, it suddenly appears that this virus has a capacity to cause blood clotting and strokes, even in young people. We didn't know that a month ago. That may affect the parameters of opening up, and there will be a certain amount of trial and error, but it will be the kind of trial and error that is essential to the acquisition of new knowledge. You know, it's interesting. I was looking at some epidemiologists who are looking at the reopening of the beaches, and they've actually come full circle. They now believe that you are more likely to get the virus indoors than out of doors. But beaches are actually much safer than being inside. Now, that was the opposite of where they were a month ago. On Sunday, I went on a long bike ride into Washington, and I did the Washington perimeter along Rock Creek Park and the Capitol Crescent Trail. I've been doing that regularly during the lockdown. It's not illegal, although some parts of it have been closed. I saw many, many more people and families out. The parks starting to be populated. They weren't packed, but there were a lot of people out. And down by the Potomac River, there were hundreds of people fishing. They were practicing social distancing by families, and the fishing was great. And the spirits were very, very high, and it made me so happy seeing the world coming back to life. Did you understand why Governor Whitmer in Michigan said that you could kayak, but you could not use a motorboat? In general, I think it was a mistake to try to define all things that are forbidden versus permitted in terms of what is essential activity as defined by the government. And that permitted a lot of, you know, you can open a liquor store, but you can't have an Easter morning sunrise service or marijuana shops in Denver. That's an essential service, but church is not. It's not entirely paranoid to be able to see some ideology creeping into this. And the important thing is to move not toward what the government says is essential, but to move toward what sorts of activities create uh, greater or lesser risk for the spread of the epidemic. Can you imagine what the federal bureaucracy would have come up with if they'd been told to produce the list for all of America and then how hard it would have been to change it once they produced it? It would have been, I think, a running nightmare. One hears now many calls that we can't open up. This is in the national media until we have a comprehensive, nationally directed plan for testing. Okay? Well, we did have a federally directed comprehensive plan for testing in February. It was the plan of the FDA and the CDC. And here was the plan. Only one kind of coronavirus testing was permitted, and that was the test that was developed by the CDC in Atlanta and would be administered by it. And every other kind of test as proposed by eminent epidemiologists and clinics and clinicians and pharmaceutical companies, was verboten. That's what a national plan looks like. The government test is okay. Everybody else's test, we don't know about that. Not invented here. We're not going to do it. That was not a very successful plan, and it does not speak very well of the potential for a national plan. When people talk about the need for a national plan, what they're really saying is, I wish this problem would go away. And they're just sort of 
imagining this perfect national plan that does everything right. But you actually have to think about how the real institutions that we know actually operate in practice. Well, and of course, in the case of the CDC, they totally screwed up creating the test. Apparently, the laboratory was corrupted, and they may have set back the development of tests by three weeks just by their own internal mistakes. I was actually in South Korea when this began. Because of SARS, all of those countries right around China, South Korea, Taiwan, Japan, Hong Kong, and Singapore, they all were prepared for something bad. They had no idea what it would be, but they were confident that at some point something would come out of China again. And within days, they had moved to wearing masks at the airport. And if you went into a hotel, the doorman took your temperature, which is not a guarantee, but they were rapidly looking for people who had a fever, trying to isolate people, and did a reasonably good job of it. In America, we are isolated, and we're rich, and we're free, and we like life the way it is, and we don't like to be disturbed. And we were late to the party in World War One. We were late to the party in World War Two. We were late to the party here. But when we actually get our act together, get out of the way, because we are going to succeed. And the CDC, in its initial coronavirus tests in mid-February, it made some big mistakes. But, you know, when you're just starting in doing something that involves an enormous amount of uncertainty, you make mistakes. And the challenge is to have a system that learns from mistakes, corrects them quickly, and a single unitary bureaucratic approach is not the way to do that. If we had let a lot of clinical testing proposals that were coming out of the Mayo Clinic, the University of Washington Clinic in those days, they may have made some mistakes at the beginning too, but there were a lot of different ones. They would have been coordinating with each other and they would have fixed the problems much more quickly. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. 
The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. So let me ask you, though, because one of the things which pervades this whole conversation as a country is the degree to which the national media, for a variety of reasons, is both deeply biased in favor of centralization and is almost unable to cover the actual process of COVID-19 because it's so busy trying to find a way to trip up or embarrass or attack President Trump. And I know you said the national media really would like one authority to go to. Can you expand on that? I do think that the problem of the national media trying to undermine the president is an important phenomenon here. It's worrisome. And I can't go back in history to a period where a very large part of the national political media intellectual establishment wanted the president of the United States to fail. There have been critics. I mean, there's always lots of criticism, but to this longing to find a way to create a political failure for our head of state, that's a new thing. And I think it's confused the coverage of this emergency and the administration's response. Newt, the desire for unified, centralized, national approaches to anything is very, very powerful in the national networks in two of the three big national newspapers. I think that a lot of it is simply in the economics of the news business. If you can have a couple of people covering the White House and you can cover everything of political importance and come into the country, that is a great business model for media. If you have a country where as many important decisions are being made in San Antonio and in Portland and in Peoria and in rural Georgia. That's a lot more complicated to cover. If you have lots and lots of centers of initiative and authority, it makes local newspapers and local coverage and commentary much more important. So I think that this instinct for centralization, you see it in many politicians because they're in the Washington political game and they want more power. But I think you also see it in the media and because they are the ones who are delivering the news to many people. I think that it is a dangerous phenomenon that people have to be aware of. But I would also say, I think a lot of people are aware of it. I think that the glorification of centralized national planning tends to be something that is taken much more seriously by people who live and work in Washington than people who live and work out around the country. When you look out towards the future, are you an optimist or a pessimist? I'm sort of an intellectual pessimist and a temperamental optimist, and I don't know exactly what the future will bring. I can see a lot in this emergency that could conduce over the next couple of years to a great centralization of government. We now have people 
saying that the federal government has to take over the pension obligations of the states, which are now well north of $1.5 trillion that are a result of decades of mismanagement. With the government engaging in this gusher of spending, it's possible for there to be lots more centralization. We could move up to a world where 40% of state finances are coming from the federal government. That is a world where there's going to be much less room for flexibility, laboratories of democracy at the local level. There's a lot to fear and to be cautious about. I don't want to minimize the horrors of what we have been through. But as far as our institutional architecture is concerned, we've gotten off to a very good start, a better one than in previous emergencies. Things could go badly, but we've laid the groundwork for having a strong set of arguments for preserving the diversification of our system of government in these big debates to come. So I can see lots of threats, but I'm not sure what to do with the idea of intellectual pessimism. That can actually be a very helpful attitude because it means that you are not just blissfully ignorant of all of the threats around you. If we'd been a little bit more pessimistic about the possibility of a pandemic a year ago, that might have had a happier result. That was a long-winded way, Newt, of saying that starting out with an attitude of pessimism can actually lead you to steps that try to maximize the positive potential. I want to thank you, and I'll just say for the record that having a chance to spend some time with you brings back a great range of fond memories of the time you spent tutoring me when I was allowed to hang out with oh, you. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thank you very much. Take care. Be well. Thank you to my guest, Chris DeVuth. You can learn more about President Trump and his administration's efforts to defeat the COVID-19 virus on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gamers360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Slump. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. Please email me with your comments at newt at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, China, what role did they play in the spread of COVID-19 globally? What responsibility should they bear for the devastation the virus has caused? I'm devoting a three-part series looking at China and COVID-19. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.